Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Derek Kabilis, welcome to the show. I've been awake for an hour. I got my coffee Ooh. here. I'm ready to, to talk about hell, of course. All what, right, what else? Dan. Let's do it. <laughs> you are an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church, but that just means you're a pastor, right? Like, that's just the language in Methodism for you went to yeah. school, you got a master's of divinity, and now you are a pastor. Exactly. And you're in Ohio, is that right? Yep. Tough for me. 49ers fan both teams within I don't know a few hours of your home beat my team in the last month so I'm not going to hold that against you which is rare I mean I know are you are you a football fan yourself moderately I'm less of a sports fan now than I ever have been in my life but I still follow it from time to time yeah that sounds well especially especially being a Browns fan man you want to talk about unhealthy yeah Oh, sure. Oh, you want to talk about hell? <laughs> Let's do hell, it. That's that's the first point. Hell is Cleveland Browns fandom. <laughs> uh, when did you start thinking about hell? So, like you said, I'm a United Methodist, which is like a mainline denomination that is basically nice. You know, they're... they're <laughs> That's actually one of the best descriptions of United Methodism I've ever heard. Yeah, we're, basically we're nice. A very pleasant <laughs> denomination. Um, and it doesn't come up that much, honestly. Right. I teach these these 
eight week long seminars on different topics. And I do them twice a year. And I said, Hey, so what do you want the next one to be on? And a bunch of them came up to me and said, Oh, we want to talk about heaven and hell. And I'm like, Oh man, that's a tough one. Cause I, I, I don't. And I think that's why they wanted me to talk about it. You know, well, so we get into this topic and I start to realize just how much pain there really is in people over that topic. I mean, there was someone who, you know, lost a child either by miscarriage or an infancy who was a former Catholic whose priest had told her that and quite wrongly, according to Catholic doctrine, by the way, that the child was in some place called limbo, which was a sort of gray nothingness. People who were freaking out because their their parents weren't believers or their children had walked away from the church and they were scared about their eternal futures and, and everything. And at the same time, I had come to some firmness about my own beliefs, which, as I discuss in the book, I'm a, I'm a purgatorial universalist. And I figured out that, boy, this is a book that, that needs to be written, especially for lay people. Um, there's, there's a lot of books that, if you want to get into the theology of universal reconciliation and epicotostasis and all that stuff that are written from a very high-minded theological perspective that you almost need uh, masters of divinity to be able to tackle, you can mm-hmm. find those. But I wanted to write a book for the people in my own churches and in my own family. Yeah. We'll get to what you mean by purgatorial universalist. Um, we'll sure. get there. But I, I want to kind of lay out some of the human interest stuff here and the motivation a bit more. When I think about hell from a psychological perspective, I think of it as sort of this – I mean, it's funny because our, our concept of hell is these like unextinguishable flames and – suffering and, and, you know, that kind of a thing. But as a psychological concept, there's an unextinguishability built into it as well, where Mm -hmm. it's basically like infinity, you know, like when little kids are like, well, I'm, I know it (laughs) 10 times. I know it a thousand times. I know it infinity times. Mm -hmm. It's like the last thing you can say. And it has a kind of a finality and it has a, a sort of a mathematical power to it. If something is true, you know, if there's some mm-hmm. claim that might be true about eternal hell, then it by definition swallows up everything else it, mm-hmm. to the extent that you take it on its face, that you take it at face value. And where people differ, I think, psychologically is even those people who believe in it. They don't necessarily face it as squarely as each other, you know, absolutely so, not, you know, so I don't, maybe, maybe I imagine you probably came across some of that stuff with your congregants. I don't know if you want to speak to either of those ideas. Yeah. Well, you have to look at hell as a psychological construction hmm. that, that happened over centuries. We literally invented the scariest possible thing imaginable. Right. The thing that is literally designed to burrow down to the deepest part of your reptile brain 
and cause fear. Wow. I love, I love that. I love that framing that, you know, I, cause I've heard people say before, and, and if people have read or listened to stuff on, on this topic, you know, from the historical perspective, which we might get into, but you know, mm-hmm. a brief, a brief pencil sketch is like, there's not really hell in the old Testament. And then there's some new Testament language that mm-hmm. looks like it. It's so, sort of hinting at eternal stuff, but mostly it's not eternal language. It's pretty conditional language that kind of ends. And then we get Dante, right? And there's maybe oh, yeah. some other steps along the way. Oh, yeah. And then we get Jonathan Edwards in the United That's States. And, right. and we get this kind of like tripling down and it's like reducing a sauce you know, like on the stove down to its parts, because I've heard that described before the kind of basics of the history. But what I like about what you're saying is, yeah, but, but it's, it's a construct and we're making the psychological construct of it. That's the thing that we are reducing down, reducing down, reducing down, almost like we need that kind of a tool in the toolkit. And so we created it. That image of reducing down, to create the most potent possible idea for behavior management, right? There is yeah, no, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. there is no bigger stick that you can offer no bigger carrot than he, than heaven and no bigger stick than hell. Yeah. Um, so much so that uh, you were also right when you said you can't really face it. Probably the first big claim I make in Holy Hell, my book, is that no one actually truly believes in it. If 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 people did believe in it, their lives would be totally different. Yeah. I think there's a handful of people. Like, I, I don't know if I would say nobody. I think there are uh, maybe sure some of some street preachers, yeah, uh, and yeah. also some people who struggle with with deep mental health issues. But we would all be like that, you know. We would all be the street preacher on the side of the road, looking like a raving lunatic, if the truth of an eternal hell was actually present on the forefront of our minds. Right. One of the big claims I talk about is. If a majority of Christians in the world ever actually truly believed that there was a possibility that their children might burn forever and ever without any hope, then part of our culture would be that procreation would be terribly, terribly immoral. Hmm. To open a life to that possibility? Yeah would be unthinkable. And every time a child was born, we would think it a tragedy. So that pure version of it is obviously not, that doesn't exist. We don't have large numbers of people who truly take all of those premises to their final conclusion, right? Which, which is that we, yeah, you wouldn't want to risk that. Although at the same time, because you can't have a better carrot than heaven, you might want to risk it. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. That that one's tough. But well, the math becomes undoable yeah, when, you when you're working with these infinities. Yeah. How do you make sense of them? exactly? And so, so the idea is just that like people don't work that way. We we are not. Uh, and you know, there's really interesting stuff under the under the heading of behavioral economics about this stuff in a in a non-spiritual lens, you know, all the Daniel Kahneman and, and Amos Tversky stuff 
with uh, that that Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis write about, yeah. and you know, the Undoing Project. I think is the Michael Lewis book about their friendship and the you know these uh, the motivated reasoning and all, all these things that humans do, where like we don't we're we're not rational calculators, mm-hmm. right? So we we don't act based on what the math would tell us to do. We mm-hmm. act based on other things like kinship drives and and what mm-hmm. our community is doing and people we look up to or respect. Like, what do they do? Then we kind of do that. And, uh, you know, there, there's all these, you know, there's all these different, like the heuristics language of all these various sure. ways that, that humans are essentially illogical, right? You could put that in conversation with this. And, and you say, yeah, it's like, ideally, we choose, like, for instance, in an economic sense, ideally, we choose the best product that meets our demand, that has been, mm-hmm. you know, the, the best constructed and is most likely to last us. And then, you, you know, you're laughing because, of course, that's not the product that we buy most of the time. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we do. But that's kind of like what's going on with, with hell, where it's like, yeah, we, we have this this background thing going, but, but when push comes to shove for most people, if you ask them, if their dear aunt Sally, who was not a Christian is burning in hell, they'll have something to say like, well, she was, you know, she's one of the good ones. God, God knew her heart (laughs) or there's some rumor that at the end of her life, she might, you know, there was some evidence that maybe she turned towards God in her final moments. Like we will do, we will do whatever we got to do to get out of that cul-de-sac because it's unbearable. You kind of have to survive psychologically. Yeah. Right. In order to just make a life for yourself in the midst of these, unimaginable theological ideas. Yeah. So you kind of have to take out a machete of rumor and justifications, justifications. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Rationalization to try to make sense of it. What I want to do for people in, in what the book I hope gives people permission to do is to, to question the reality itself and to take a hard look at it and say, wait, why do I have this hell background static even influencing my life at all? What is this doing to me? Because I, while yes, you may pull your mind away from it from time to time in order to actually live a human style life. Right. Yeah. I want to say that that hell is kind of like the moon, even in a progressive tradition like the United Methodist Church or the Episcopalians or ELCA, whoever. It doesn't shine as bright as the sun, which is, of course, our teachings about Jesus and grace and mercy and the Sermon on the Mount and all those things. God is love, but it is still there. And it has a gravity to it. Yeah. And it pulls on the, the sort of tides of our lives. And I think ultimately when you start thinking about people who are, are sort of destined for this kind of eternal torment, it makes you split the world into unhelpful binaries between good but good guys and bad guys 
lives who that matter and lives that ultimately don't matter all all yeah. of those things and it even it even shakes the way you think about your own relationships here on earth how how you relate to your children and your parents that are unhelpful i'd want to think about it more but my guess is that hell is always unhelpful uh with you actually with the exception of there are stories and there are many of these stories of people who uh, choose not to attempt suicide because of the possibility that they might go to hell. That's the only thing I've heard that I'm like, oh, that's a legitimate benefit. And, I, and I'll stand mm. by that as a benefit. I, like if that's what it takes to keep someone around to, to sort of keep trying, like, OK, we'll, we'll roll with that. I think heaven has a lot more benefits. And I, I wonder it's an open question to me whether we could get those without some version of hell for, for many people. Some people can get that. Like I, I think I get, well, I, I don't know. I guess I probably don't even get these heaven benefits the same way that other people do. But for instance, you know, there might be a person you have to, you have to deal with across some difference, but you recognize that you're both brothers or sisters in Christ and that they will be, they'll be in heaven too. And that then motivates you to sort of find some common ground or find some way to relate to them. Like the the oh, idea of, yeah. uh, you know, the, there are multiple benefits to, to to heaven and a psychological perspective. It's harder to find them for hell. The, the first one, I think, comes to us just from the Lord's Prayer, right? Mm. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The idea is, is that... We build this kind of ideological eternity that includes all of this wonderful equality and bliss and rest Mm. and sustenance. And then we do what we can to make that a reality here on Earth. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does make Um, sense. Yeah. That it. It, if, if we need to have kind of an earthly reason for believing in it, that's what I would point to. Yeah. Well, let's get into some of this construction stuff, because I, I asked uh, patrons of this show for questions to ask you. Sure. Um, yeah, partly because awesome. like, yeah, well, it, it's just it's a topic that I have covered Oh, uh, yeah. A couple a couple times before, and in my personal life, it was very important to me. Really, uh, for me, it was the second big question of my deconstruction out of evangelicalism. What was the, fir- the first one? The first one was the Canaanite conquest and basically God commanding violence. But then the second one for me was, was hell. And again, it's that philosophy angle, right? It's like this concept... It's stuff that Christian philosophers write about and atheistic critical philosophers will write, you know, criticizing theism mm-hmm. and this idea of eternal torment. And the kind of original argument for me um, that convinced me probably 20, 20, 21 years ago now was there's no way to get justice from mm. an equation on which the punishment is infinite. Yeah, like, there's just no exactly no right. conception of justice would go, okay, you killed 10 people, therefore you ought to serve 1,000 life sentences or (laughs) infinity life sentences. Like there's just, you know, 10, 
10 life sentences, you know, like if it was something yeah. like that, if the, if the idea was something like for every sin you commit, then you, you pay for it in some way. And then when you're done paying for it, your, your debt is paid. If, if that were the conception of hell that I were offered as a, a kid, then I don't think it would have uh, provided the same philosophical problem to me. Sure. But sure. because it's infinite, you know, at least at least the eternal conscious torment kind of standard standard Protestant view of hell it was like, what that, you know, that <laughs> just can't I can't square the math. So all that to say, uh, I, I worked through this question for the most part, you know, many years ago, and I've still covered it on the show because, of course, people are working through it all the time and new Absolutely. people are working through it. And it's. You know, we, we sort of need fresh voices always because people are, are asking different questions at different times in their lives. And so that's why that's, that was a very long preamble for, to why I asked for questions from <laughs> my listeners. And I got a bunch of stuff about really the the historical sort of creation of this idea, which you've already alluded to. So why don't I mm. kind of throw out some of these specific questions and and um, we'll go with those. So So Paul says... My understanding is that Jewish people in the Old Testament, the Israelites, did not believe in heaven or hell, but believed in Sheol, a general resting place for the dead, good or bad. And then by the first century AD, beliefs had changed so that there was a belief in heaven and hell types of afterlife. What would the first century Jewish view of the afterlife have looked like? And how would that be different than the common evangelical ideas of heaven and hell today? So you can kind of nitpick any parts of that or whatever. Yeah, I, w- I would have to say you would you would need to ask a rabbi that or someone with um, okay uh, yeah. a, a better understanding of the the history of Jewish thought. What I can say is that in in so I approach the Hebrew Scriptures as a Christian, which means that everything I read cannot help but be sort of overlaid with what I believe has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I just can't offer an objective explanation of that. Mm -hmm. What I can say is that it's really interesting how that word Sheol has been translated over the years. Yeah. And a big part of the the book is I I did, just as an example, I did a, a quick study of the way the King James Bible translate shield. And it's interesting that whenever the word sounds like a bad place, whenever it appears in a verse where destruction is happening, or there's some kind of fire or whatever, they use the word hell Mm. uh, to describe it, which of course is a Nordic word that comes from niffle hell, which isn't even warm. It's, I actually didn't. Cool. I didn't know that. We. I might yeah. need to ask a follow up. But but finish your point about the King James. But so so they use the word hell when it sounds bad, but in places where it sounds good, they use the words grave or pit. Hmm. Because there are a lot of places where Sheol does not appear to be that bad at all, right? Yeah. In First uh, Samuel, I think it's twenty eight. Saul summons the witch of Endor. If Sheol is hell, then wouldn't that be the worst hiding place of all time? Right, right. Save my life from the pit. Is that Sheol? 
as well? Like, um, there are a few different words for pit. For pit, okay. And yeah. Sheol is one of them, but yeah. I'm not sure. I do know. Okay, it's Psalm 139. If I make my bed in the the translation is the grave, but it's in Sheol. Yeah. Thou art there. Wow. So God's um, there. And yeah. So if God's yeah. in Sheol, then it can't be. In, in the yeah. way that, that evangelicals used to tell me, talk to me about hell was that it was, it was a place that was devoid of the presence of God. Okay. Can we talk about that for a second? Cause I think yeah. I know where that comes from. Cause that's and, r- ridiculous. In well, my mind. but anyway. it's ridiculous in the, in the text, but I actually think, and I, I don't have uh, historical scholarship to back this up, but the way that the way that that claim was used that I heard growing up was it was a way to make hell sound less ridiculous and less like God yeah. is a total monster. And so it was a way of saying, no, 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 eternal hell is mm-hmm. just the absence of God. Yeah. And it's a natural consequence of creatures choices who choose not God, then they get not God. And that is hell because to be completely without God, that is torment. So it's not like, like that's not in the Bible. Uh, no, that is just a, it's a way that you don't have to totally dismantle exactly. your view of heaven and hell, which would, which might require dismantling your view of the inspiration of scripture. Well, uh, as but well to be as honest things, with you, yeah. that's the least biblical interpretation of hell I can imagine. <laughs> I uh, don't doubt it. Because but it's psychologically, but it's psychologically yeah. powerful and it's convenient. a strategy. It's a strategy. Paul says, you know, that God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Yeah. How can God we have is being the font no of God. existence? Yeah. yeah. If yeah. you cut us off from that. You cease to exist, which is what the entire idea of annihilationism is built upon. Right. And to be clear there, so let's just lay out a couple terms. In case people haven't heard previous episodes, I'll do a brief taxonomy. Feel free to correct me if you you want. So let's say at the top or at the bottom, there is the idea of eternal conscious torment and eternal blissful heaven. This is sort of the version many of us are raised with, especially in more conservative spaces. That, uh, you know, heaven is eternal, conscious, basically bliss, and hell is eternal, conscious torment. This is the idea that people who go to hell, they are conscious, they experience pain, and they will literally never stop experiencing that pain uh, forever. Next up uh, is the idea of annihilationism. So this is the idea that if you are also known as conditional immortality. Mm -hmm. So this is the idea that if you are saved by the blood or in whatever way you are saved, then you are then you are given immortality. You are given heaven. But if you are not saved, then you are not given that immortality. And therefore, as you are cut off from God, you are cut off from being itself. And so you simply cease to be. Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, I think if you're just doing like a a vocabulary study of the New Testament, uh, this is the view that I think has the most check marks in its column in terms of the language used. That's my personal from stuff I've read oh. years ago. There's a lot of language about I just mean like if you're oh. adding up the words and giving it, there's like a lot about death, extinguished, destruction, burnt up. Yeah, yes, okay. like okay. there's a lot of finality language around this stuff. 
The next view, which is, I think, kind of your view, purgatorial universalist, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is this is what it is, is where uh, there's a part where Paul says, we are all saved as through fire or something mm-hmm. to that effect. And the idea is there is justice for every sin. Uh, God is a just God, and, and we do pay for our genuine sins uh, in a purgatorial fashion. We are basically purified by fire, and then we all go to eventual universal reconciliation uh, or heaven or whatever that looks like. And then there's another view. There's like universal reconciliation without purgatory. So that's like, mm. a, you know, no, it's just like like. This is so much of our lives is actually hell on earth that we are subjected to. (laughs) And like once this is over, like God's loving arms enfold us. And, you know, so then people will argue back and forth between those latter two camps as to, well, what happens with true evil and how is that punished or, you know, whatever. Then there's maybe another category of like where I would stand, which is if there is anything at all after this life, it is it is founded on God's unconditional love for God's creatures. And I sure hope there's something and there also might be nothing. That's the last. Category. Yeah, that's pretty good. I, the only, the only argument that I would have to make is kind of the, the legal or juridical language you use to describe purgatorial universalism, which is oh, good. Please. I, I, I don't think it's an exact accounting. Like mm. there's a ledger that everyone has okay that that has a specific amount of like punishment like from the good place or whatever out yeah Yeah. no what i the way i see it is as a kind of rehabilitation yeah i think of it more almost as a kind of physical therapy Mm. that hey man if, if you're going into eternal life like your soul has to be prepared for that and it does require forgiveness. So one of the one of my arguments about with kind of eternal conscious torment is that they they struggle to give an account for how sin is actually forgiven. And I want to say there is actual forgiveness there. Mm, um yeah. but at the Not same just punishment. time punishment. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, there is still work that needs to be done. And so like I imagine some of the people in my life won't require much rehabilitation at all. Mm. And I think of myself, I think of, you know, some choice politicians and I think, Oh man, we might be there for a while. Uh, (laughs) There might be a lot of uh, work to do to get this spirit into shape. Yeah. I I think I, I love, I love all that stuff. Just candidly for me, it's, it has to be more poetic language. Not that I like think you're wrong, It's just that I have a thing I've noticed where if I can't get my mind around something, I don't really believe it. And I also recognize that there are surely things, there are absolutely things that exist that are true about the world, namely related to physics and gravity. Yeah. Like I can't get my mind around those things. It's a little bit different to imagine the laws of physics, which I assume to be true based on smart people have sort of figured this stuff out sure. and they, they, I know that they've done experiments to sort of confirm these things and whatever. That's a little bit easier for me to handle than getting my mind around what would another type of conscious experience be like that is not based 
out of my human brain uh, on, on Earth. So I, since I can't get my mind around it, my confidence level is low. I've recognized that that's really the, the thing that's going on for me. So when I'm feeling confident about God's character, I feel confident. I feel more confident about some beautiful future, just God's holy mountain type of existence. And when I'm not feeling as confident because I just can't really imagine it. And so I I feel like I, I have to sort of be, if I'm honest, I have to be kind of agnostic about what that's like and if it happens or not. Except in the moments where I feel like, wow, like God is so just and loving that there's got to be justice and yeah. this life's not just. And then those are the times Absolutely. I feel more confident about it. So I'm, I'm glad you brought up the P word because that is probably the most underused word in our current American theological vocabulary, which is poetry. Mm. Right. And so what. What we have when we talk about these words like Sheol or in the New Testament, of course, the word Gehenna, what what you're talking about are these poetic terms that these authors are using to try to convey very deep, very mystical, very amorphous ideas about something that is ultimately unknowable. In what we have done, what we're sort of forced to do by our rational brains is to bring our our reason to bear on it and turn it into prose, right? So hope what I, I hope what my book does is give a different interpretation to the poetry of the Bible that speaks about the afterlife. Yeah, Rather, you know, a lot of folks in, in the evangelical world and, and even in the the liberal Protestant world like mine, imagine, I think, that the biblical writers were referring to a systematic theological understanding of the world when they wrote their scripture. Right. As if there was some prosaic textbook that they were all using as a source uh, to write their book, it, it, but but that's not that's not what we were given, right? What we're given is the poetry. What we're giving, what we're given, are these words of longing, yeah. trying to express these immutable truths that that we can't wrap our heads around. So a degree of humility. And wonder is necessary to have any idea at all of what these guys are talking about. If you love this podcast, if you find it helpful, I would love if you would consider joining the Patreon campaign. It is $7 a month, and it includes two, usually three, exclusive episodes per month for patrons only. It also includes ad-free episodes that sometimes even have a little bit more conversation in them that gets cut out of the main feed. And it includes access to the patron-only Facebook group. This seven bucks a month uh, helps us pay for work from Kristen and Josh, as well as putting my own time into the show. I also love getting feedback 
from patrons of the show, questions to answer in question and answer episodes, and all kinds of just information from you guys, responses, feedback to help us make this thing better. And I just, I love, frankly, I love interacting uh, with people in the Patreon community. Most of that happens on Facebook, but I also will comment on posts on the Patreon app. And you get through Patreon, you get this special feed that you can put into your regular podcast player that allows you to hear those patron-only episodes. You don't even have to go anywhere weird to hear them. It's all right there. It's very simple. And you can feel good. You can feel real good about supporting something basically DIY. This is something that we make ourselves. We're not connected to any corporation or company. uh, And it's just very, very appreciated. If you sign up for a full year, you also get something like two months free. So that's another option. If you know you're going to be here for a while, you can also at any time go in and change to that, even if you are a regular monthly patron at this time. Okay, enough of me jabbering and asking for money. It's not comfortable to do. Um, but I do truly, truly appreciate it. Okay, back to the episode. This is the way in which I am finding myself kind of reinterested or reinvigorated by the idea of of working with the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think that what has had to happen for me is I have needed a period of time to let the background assumption be flushed through my system that this is like, well, the way that I would say it is special revelation. And I recognize that Mm. even very brilliant friends of mine disagree with me on this. And I don't even know if this is the right way of framing it as a non-theologian, but I'll just say how, how I'm conceiving of it and, and you can respond. Yeah. When I think about special versus general revelation, the idea, as I understand it, is that general revelation is the kind of thing that a person paying attention can learn about God or the world sort of through what we might call natural means. Again, Mm -hmm. these terms are all problematic. Special revelation is like only something you get specifically, specially because God chose to give it. And uh, so people describe scripture as special revelation, if God is like mm-hmm. giving us that, or alternately, they will describe like the person of Jesus uh, as special revelation of a type by having Jesus show up and, and be yeah. here in a way that is uniquely God in a way that I am not God in the same way. Uh, and so, you know, maybe Jesus as might still count for me as special, depending on how you want to parse that but what i what i oh, mean that's to good. say jesus can be special that's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay still a christian in my mind like what i've what i've had to kind of do to get excited about the bible again and it doesn't mean that i'm right i'm just saying this is what i've had to do is to treat it all as general and as like it is this natural thing that creative human beings put together to describe and make poetry out of and make liturgy and practices out of their experiences with God as they see God. And I am in a similar position, just living many years later, I have experiences with God as I see God. Mm -hmm. And I have experiences within a cultural and religious tradition and group, 
just like they did. I mean, even the earliest Israelites, whoever they were, which is a really interesting and unresolved question, they start somewhere. Everybody is born into some situation, and then they have these experiences, their mind changes on things, or they their mind is opened up, their heart is opened up, whatever. Some of them are poets. Some of them mm-hmm. are historians. Some of them are whatever. And they write yeah. this stuff or earlier on, they speak it eventually gets written down. And to, to find like the fact that this is the stuff that lasted from them. That's so fucking interesting. Mm-hmm. And what is like, what can we glean from that? And, and how has this poetry or other forms of writing how has it been so powerful and animated and given language and concepts to, you know, the the great drama of human culture, history, spiritual seeking and yearning, all this kind of thing. For me, I needed time to get the here. This is God's basic basic instructions before leaving Earth. You know, mm-hmm. like I had to let that. It took a really long time. It's still happening for that to yeah. get flushed out God's of my instruction system. book. For yeah, life. exactly. Oh, and uh, well, you know, basic instructions before leaving Earth. That's an acronym for Bible. I don't know if you picked up on that, Derek. Oh no, no. Yeah, that's, you've been say you've been uh, saved from growing up evangelical. Uh, I have been sullied by that information. <laughs> <laughs> You're coming out of this conversation slightly worse for the wear mm-hmm. for having learned that. Care, yeah, careful. Spend enough time with me. You might pick up on some things. Uh, so that that for me is like uh, this is you know Dan's uh, inspiration of scripture cul-de-sac here. But I am starting to get excited again. It took me getting a new lens of psychology, basically, and cultural mm. anthropology and, and sociology of religious groups, whatever. All, all those things put them in a big category together of looking at it that way and going, wow, so what can I learn from this? Uh, and also it, it opens me up to other religious traditions as well and what I can learn from sure. what those people did. And, and that's also interesting. And, you know, but it's but it tends to be more interesting uh, to learn about the one that that formed me, you know, broadly speaking. So. Okay, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that before we move to Gehenna. Well, the the thing in in I appreciate that, and I'm glad you are having this new posture from which to to look at the Bible and to to see it freshly, because that's that's the difficult part when you're dealing with these books and these stories that have been around for so long. It's it's really hard to see them with fresh eyes again. But also, I am. I am again reminded that the one who looks at the Bible through the lens of like inerrancy or God's little instruction book, those kinds of things, those who who want to say the Bible says it, I believe it, or that settles it, or the Bible equals my worldview or whatever, that is such a disrespect to the depth of what's actually there to the history and the tradition that formed it to the history and the tradition that was formed by it to the centuries that it took to not just create it, but to reflect upon it, to live with it, the different attempts to live it out, the practices that were shaped, the liturgies, all of that fullness deserves to be respected and cherished, I think. So those who who want to look at the Bible flatly 
and say, oh, it's really easy to interpret and to understand, just believe what it tells you to believe, are actually disrespecting the book more than anyone in my mind, more than one, more than the one who simply disregards it. I think another way we could say that, Derek, is to think of the Bible as merely God's little instruction book is, in fact, to be quite glib about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the G-L-I-B. Yeah, Wait, that's is this another book one? for me. Bro, that, oh, was an ac- okay. that was an acronym joke. <laughs> Uh, fluent and voluble, but insincere and shallow. Absolutely. That's the definition. Absolutely. God's little instruction book. That's a glib view of the text. That's okay. good. Let's, that's good. Okay, let's talk about Gehenna. Did you, you, you just put that, <laughs> that together on the, right then? That was on the fucking fly, Derek. Man, you. Yeah. Hey, you know what? We you're can't as all sharp be, as a tack. We can't all be that's pros, buddy. That's <laughs> incredible. I'm impressed. <laughs> hey, inspiration strikes when it wants to. Okay, I have a listener question about Gehenna. Let's get back to the text here. So this is also from Paul. Do you think that when Jesus referred to Gehenna in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, that he was referring to uh, the burning trash dump on the outskirts of Jerusalem, which is that was the name of an actual place? Yes. Or was he referencing that trash dump, but alluding to a place or state of punishment in the afterlife? What's your view on that, Derek? I I believe he was using that trash dump as a symbol for a much deeper theological idea. But we ought not mistake that deeper theological idea for the shallow, ridiculous notion of eternal conscious torment. It is. He hard. wasn't saying people are literally just going to go to that valley. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So um, he is using it poetically. You guys know this place, and exactly. I'm using it poetically. But but let me ask you this, because so Matthew and Mark. So Mark is written probably 40 years minimum after Jesus's death. And Matthew, add 10-ish, maybe 20, depending on who you ask, right? And so there are always questions about sort of the the quote-unquote historical Jesus, right? The actual person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, so can you tell me how you think about that? So when even when we say, what was Jesus talking about? Well, what I mean, what I actually mean by that is the character Jesus presented in these to gospel accounts. Is that what you mean? Or do you mean, no, I think like Jesus of Nazareth had a theologically, you know, advanced understanding of the world. And, and he's probably like, like just sort of break down that part of it as well. I want to say that the Jesus that we see in scripture, as it relates to the word Gehenna is making reference to this valley that other theologians before him have made reference to. Oh, cool. Okay, great. Let's this hear about is, that. This is not a new thing for Jesus. There is rabbinical literature that, again, you would need to talk to an expert in first century Judaism to understand. Sure. He's not making this up out of whole cloth. He is making a reference that people would understand in the same way that he uses Hades, uh, which is the Greek mythological underworld. But we don't think that he he actually means to say that 
when people die, sometimes they go. They're they ferried across the river, the river Styx. Styx. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. And they confront Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Like, right, right. That's that's and and even if he was, then. <laughs> Okay, you still can't arrive at eternal conscious torment. Yeah. Because there are some really awesome places in Hades, mm. like the Elysian Fields, uh, mm. which is beautiful. And it's, it's where you go to kind of contemplate joy and love and, and all these things. So you can never make a one to one comparison. I love that. That's great. And part of what the historical Jesus stuff tries to do is say, okay, let's, Let's cut out all of the theological mumbo jumbo and, and and get down to brass tacks here. What's he really talking about? That is helpful only insofar as it helps us kind of interpret the signs and the symbols that are in the text itself, at least in my mind. It's also convenient that at least the Jesus Seminar folks, he always ends up being a vaguely Marxist non-supernaturalist. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I am I am convinced you could do that same thing and turn Jesus into some kind of libertarian. Sure, yeah. Whatever. Here's the thing, we're not given in historical Jesus. Like yeah. that that is a term paper project. Hmm. So that's interesting. I don't think I'd heard that that like referencing Gehenna is is sort of like referencing Hades for Jesus. Uh, even the historical Jesus, let's imagine he really talked about Gehenna and that and that probably I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm not up on historical Jesus scholarship, but that's the kind of thing that I, I think people would go. Yeah, but probably that tracks. It was a, a thing that people that a itinerant teacher would have talked about, you know, in, in that day. But when he does that, he's actually taking part in sort of like a, a literary uh, and poetic theopoetic tradition of mm-hmm. which he is. You know, that's not like a, a unique to Jesus idea to talk about this trash heap outside of Jerusalem. Yeah, no, no. I mean, this is this is a place that is infamous in a way that like Chernobyl would be infamous to us to think about Got a it. place as being spiritually radioactive. And I, I do believe that he means it as a warning. That there is, for some, something unpleasant on the other side of of life. Yeah. But to say that that thing is eternal torment with no hope or possibility of reform or relief. Yeah. Makes no sense compared to everything else he tells us about who God is, yeah. right? Yeah. The the chief thing being, of course, that God is a father or a mother or a parent or however, whatever word makes that make sense for you, that there is something of that primary relationship that God wants to share with us. Yeah, one of the things that I covered in a very early episode, I think it's number six, about atonement theories with Bonnie Christian is one of the one of the big theological arguments that is levied in support of an eternal hell, of an eternal punishment, is this idea that the punishment 
does not need to fit the crime depending on who the crime is against. Yeah. And uh, and so the, the reasoning goes, well, God is an eternally good and just God. And so a punishment against that type of a being deserves some sort of eternal and, and negative consequence by virtue of the person or entity against whom it is committed. And what historians have shown really interestingly is that that doesn't develop until the Middle Ages – until basically yeah. a feudal way of life. Absolutely. And in that system, steal a deer from your neighbor peasant, you owe him a deer. Absolutely. Steal a deer from the fucking lord of the manor, you, you owe him owe your him life. A hand. Yeah. Yeah, or a hand or whatever, right? Yeah. The punishment like where literally the punishments do not fit the crime, the punishments fit the the power level of the person against whom the crime is committed. And that is something that basically nobody thinks is just anymore. And they only thought that for a few <laughs> hundred years at, in a time yeah. when that was very convenient for the power brokers of that feudal kind of lords and, you know, that, that sort of tribal, honestly, kind of a system of governance. Yeah, this it, it we know exactly where it comes from, which is Anselm. Right. In his book, Curdeus Homo, who describes God as a being of infinite honor, and therefore a crime against a being of infinite honor requires infinite restitution, which is stupid. Well, and so that's another one like the <laughs> hell is just a no God. It's a way of making it palatable for a person today who does not want to dismantle their whole theological and scriptural and notice, system. I'm sorry, let, let me interrupt you. Go for notice it. that its purpose then, right there, is to prop up the political and legal and economic ideas of the day, which is literally what hell always is. Hell is always hmm. about creating consequences that mirror political consequences of today. This is the same reason why Dante Alighieri in Florence, Italy, puts Brutus and Cassius in the deepest level of hell right next to Judas Iscariot. And it's like, well, well, what the heck, what do they have to do with all of this? Well, it's because Dante Alighieri is part of a very particular political party influence of the time that wants to see the Roman Empire reconstituted hmm. through a powerful emperor that can take on the power of the Pope and, and so on and so forth. There's all these political machinations to it. That's how theological ideas get co-opted yeah. by the political power brokers of the time. I want to push back a little bit. I don't disagree with you about Dante or Anselm or whatever in, in those particular cases. But what I'm imagining today is just like a local Bible church pastor mm -hmm. who uh, someone asks him about this. This hell thing seems kind of a little bit in, intense here, buddy. And he reaches for sometimes, let's say, the well – it's a, a crime against an infinitely good God. And so 
you know, maybe that requires an infinite punishment. Okay. So the Mm -hmm. pastor reaches for this. I don't think in that case that the pastor is motivated by upholding the power structures of the day. Not really. Maybe somewhere in the background. I think that the lens of sort of maintaining oppressive power systems is a super helpful lens. I think in a lot of cases when, when the people who are speaking have a lot of that power, it is especially an apt and appropriate lens, Mm -hmm. but I I wouldn't, I wouldn't just take like a local parish pastor and want to apply it. So I want to give an alternate explanation in that situation. And then we'll, maybe we don't disagree. Well, can I respond to it? Sure. Yeah. Before you do that real quick. I don't I don't want to sound like I'm so cynical that I think people are using hell directly to maintain control over their little fiefs of power yeah consciously mm-hmm. but I do think that that does like you said operate in the background yeah consciously and subconsciously more often than not subconsciously where a preacher could be overseeing a congregation and they notice that uh, people are kind of starting to fray around the edges. Maybe they're not as faithful as they used to be. Maybe, you know, they're kind of da-da-da-da-da. And something in their mind kind of tells them, okay, I need to click back to the hell thing and start giving them warnings and kind of using that to kind of pull them back. Yeah, I think I agree with you, and we're not going to really – and we don't really disagree here. I, I would say I can imagine an angel and a devil version even of that subconscious motivation from that pastor. Yeah, sure. The, the devil motivation is, hey, the power of my, my church and therefore my pastoral position might be slipping, and let's let's remind people what's at stake here. And that will also have a benefit for my bottom line, the church's bottom line, whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's an angel version, which is I see my people, my congregation struggling. Uh, I think that they are not tapping into the power of God. And maybe <laughs> what they need is a little a good old fashioned being afraid because the stakes are high. And for a person, especially a pastor who does believe for for various reasons that that stick is important, that stick of hell. And they, they probably haven't read your book or other books like it. They haven't read David Bentley Hart or Brad Jersak or whoever, you know, or, or they've been, or they've been told and they've believed that those are, those are dangerous lines of reasoning because they, they lower the stakes and we need the stakes uh, because we are depraved human beings and and we will go our own sinful way any chance we get. Anyway, there are all, all these kind of like I don't want to only pathologize it. I, I think there are ways in sure, which absolutely. they they can genuinely mean well for their for their congregations. Yes. So then I think they reach for a description like a crime against an infinitely good God to, to requires infinite punishment. That is a it's a shorthand that gets them that like sort of closes a loop of cognitive dissonance for them or possibly a congregant. But like you're saying kind of throughout the book, they don't follow that to its logical conclusion. They would not accept any other gradation (laughs) of that the way that Anselm would have. So they, they would not say, well, 
Also, if you steal from a wealthy person in our community, you should be punished more strongly than if you steal from a poor person. Mm -hmm. They would Mm -hmm. uphold, especially American Protestant pastors would say, absolutely not. I believe in a just penal system that is, hey, if this is the crime, if it's three months for this kind of theft, then it's three months for that kind of theft uh, to anybody. So they would only apply it to God. But they would divorce it from that gradation of different levels of of earthly power. And and that's just like it, it just shows that they're not using it as an actual argument. They are using yeah. it as a way of closing a loop of cognitive dissonance. For themselves, but but also for those who are put under their care. Exactly. Right? For those put under their care, because they think it's serving some larger purpose of like the stakes need to be high so that people will take this shit seriously. So all of that kind of gets whittled down into the kind of personality projection that so many preachers have to have, which is they need to show that they have everything all figured out right? That they have little formulas and little ways of understanding the theology of the Bible in these pithy little ways that they can just drop in the middle of their Sunday school Mm. or when someone asks a question or something like that, that convey this air of certainty. And authority. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Everything is kind of based on that. I think the authority comes from the certainty that Mm. we give these guys authority based on their ability to project their own certainty. Mm. That is. Wow. I like that. That that also kind of explains Driscoll in a way or that. that Oh, absolutely. Part of part of him. Yeah. Has he ever ever admitted to not knowing something or not understanding something right. like they they can't because their whole power structure is built on this kind of the bible says it i believe it and that settles it i want to pivot in with our remaining time to something constructive and this is a great question that that david passed along Assuming that there was at one time a salutary function, uh, a helpful function to these stories, what are the new or ancient stories that that replace, you know, these these ideas of hell? What what are the stories that inspire hope for justice and mercy, you know, that and that invite us to participate, you know, in our current time and place? I'm not sure that they're new stories. I think that they are stories that we come to look at in new ways. Okay. Give me some Does examples. that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. I happen to think purgatorial universalism not only takes like some of these scriptures we've been talking about very seriously, but actually invites people to think about the other as God sees them, right? So by denying eternal conscious torment and by saying, actually, what 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 happens on the other side of life seems to be, again, no certainty involved, seems to be some kind of, of rehabilitative state whereby souls are prepared for 
eternal life and sicknesses are healed and dross is burned away. And that that happens for everybody from your Derek Kabilis to your Hitler to your devil, right? On a long enough timeline, everyone Mm. is kind of reconciled. What we're, what we're doing is we are adding texture to the way that we understand people such that, oh yeah, no one is a lost cause. Hmm. No one is incapable of reform. I worked uh, for a year as a an assistant chaplain at a youth detention facility in North Carolina as part of my seminary work. And I learned through that experience firsthand just how common it is to pe- for people to write, just write off other people, is saying that they have no hope. Yeah, They have no capacity to grow, to learn, to be rehabilitated. And so my story of treating hell as a kind of universal purgatory, I think, invites people to be more empathetic and to think carefully about their own lives and to take into consideration the measure of justice that they live out in their day-to-day walk. I really love that idea. Let, let's kind of, let's play the tape out in, in an example. Compare that with the alternative. So you've got these people who are, uh, you know, in a juvenile facility, they're young, they're young men or women mm-hmm. who are, you know, behind bars for the time being. You could apply the same thing to adult prison populations. Sure. Or anybody really who's kind of sequestered into some segment of their city or area that like that we don't have to go, you know, we don't have to spend time there and they're, you know, sort of the, this, this forgotten segment, this forgotten population. If we think that probably those kind of people just go to hell and they, they burn in hell forever that I, I know how I, I see what you were saying earlier about how, that maps on to a a kind of tribal us versus them identity quite neatly. Oh um, yeah, the dichotomy right where, of that. Exactly, we're the good team and they are the bad team, and uh, God's gonna you know God's gonna sort that out for us. And of course, you know, conveniently we'll be we'll be on the right side of that. Versus this idea of well, if what happens when everybody dies is they are forged in the natural fire of God's love and justice to be prepared for their next phase. Mm -hmm. Again, like thinking of this, you know, primarily poetically, uh, at least not, I can't think of it very concretely in those, in those terms, but I can think of it as like, yeah, like uh, a just and loving God will accomplish this. However, maybe it's the way that God accomplishes, like, I don't know, creating a universe. (laughs) So maybe there's sure. some other kind of thing that that God would do yeah, akin to what God has done here. So then play that out. So how does, how is that different than we, the way we think about those people in prison or, or kind of siloed away in these, in these slums or, or, or homeless encampments or mm-hmm. however you want to think of it. When I spent time at prison, there was a young man who had officially been released his his time had been served, but they just he didn't have anyone who was willing to come and claim him. So he, that meant because he was a minor, 
he just had to stay there hmm. until his 18th birthday. Wow. Because no one would come and take responsibility for him. He was just simply left and abandoned. And every day soaking up more and more resentment and anger and hopelessness from that place, just soaking it like a sponge. There are people who would tell us that that God abandons people, that God just gives up on people at a certain point, that there's a certain level that that you can reach where God just can't help you anymore, isn't even going to try, is just going to let you screw up and face the consequences, and that's it. I'm trying to say no. God never abandons anyone, and that God is always reaching, God is always rehabilitating, God is always trying to heal, trying to love, and that's why we can't abandon someone. That's why we have to keep reaching out, keep loving, keep rehabilitating, keep serving, because we are mirroring that which God does because we are made in that God's image. The point is, is that God, for everyone, becomes a kind of master signifier, right? God is the one who gives us our identity from which we draw our own lessons about how to live in this life right here and now. And so we re- we have to be very careful about what we proclaim with such certainty that God does. If God punishes people for no reason forever and ever with no hope of rehabilitation, then that is going to turn us into capricious punishers. That's going to turn us into abusers. That's going to turn us into a more warlike people. If we follow a God that holds authority and cares about justice, but for whom justice is always motivated by love and concern for the other, that's going to shape the way we are just as well. And I, I want to choose that latter type of God for us to worship. And I think, I think it's closer to the kind of God that's ultimately being described in the special revelation of the Bible. I mean, there's more I could ask you, but I, I feel like that that's the best possible place to end this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Derek, thank you so much for your time. Obviously, we'll put a link to the book, Holy Hell, in the show notes uh, thank you for that that alternate vision. That that's going to really stick with me because we can quibble. Theologians can quibble about the different options here and what the consequences mm-hmm. are. But but I I love the idea of just that purgatory universalism as a, a poetic interpretive lens to kind of give us the the framework and also a lot of fuel and energy for living and and relating with other people in a in a Christ-like way that doesn't give up on on hope. Now we might have to set personal boundaries and we're we're not all sure. called to do all kinds of rehabilitative work here yeah, on, on yeah. this earth, but as a overall framework 
to then discern our place in that framework, you know, as individuals, I think is, I think is really beautiful. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm just grateful for this conversation with you today. I've really, really enjoyed it. I've, I've really enjoyed it too. Boy, sometimes when you're on podcasts, you just say that, but I'm like looking at the clock and I'm like, oh man, this is going to end soon. <laughs> this sucks. Yeah. Um, because I, I actually really do enjoy talking to you. It's like talking to a buddy. So. Oh, I appreciate that, man. I feel the same way. Uh, anywhere else we should send people besides uh, checking out the book? No, you can check out Holy Hell. I I do. We were talking before the show started. If any of your listeners out here struggle with family members or friends in church or wherever who struggle with conspiracy theories, and they also happen to be Christian, I do have a 10-episode podcast called Crossover Q, uh, where we kind of confront the lies of QAnon and, and try to help people kind of break some of the thought patterns that create conspiracy theories. So you can find Crossover Q wherever that's found. Otherwise, uh, you can pre-order Holy Hell. Give yourself a little gift that'll come to you in February. Okay. Thanks so much, Derek. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Dan.